Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. I heard Arlene Lakin speak at a conference on the many special needs of people with developmental disabilities. I was impressed, and it became evident that there are two aspects of health care that parallel each other. One is the scientific and medical ability to fix or prevent conditions, and the other is having the access to the medical and supportive systems that these people need. For many people, especially those with developmental disabilities, their voices are not heard. Mrs. Lakin, who is an attorney and also the mother of a child with a severe developmental disability, is the president of Florida's Voice on Developmental Disabilities, and she speaks to the problems of access of getting needed care. Her website, or rather the organization's website, is www.floridasvoices, that's one word, F-L-O-R-I-D-A-S-V-O-I-C-E-S dot org. Mrs. Lakin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me speak. And the uh, website, by the way, Dr. Ass is Florida's Voice, singular, V-O-I-C-E dot org. Oh, okay. Just wanted to make that correction. Okay, thank you. It is interesting that even philosophers these days are beginning to discuss the challenges that the developmentally disabled present to our society. I read that it is being called the social model of disability, whereby people with disabilities do not need as much fixing as does the environment surrounding those with disabilities. So let's begin with a simple definition, however. I know you're not a physician, but when we use the term developmentally disabled, what does that include? Well, in the state of Florida, we have actually statute on that. And in Florida, the developmental disabilities are either one of five, mental retardation, autism, cerebral palsy, Prader-Willi or Prader-Willi, depending on who you speak to, and spina bifida. Those are the five labeled developmental disabilities in Florida. The only one that actually has really cognitive impairment is mental retardation. Some people with autism, very bright, and cerebral palsy may have just physical involvement. Prader will I there are maybe some uh, cognitive issues, but not necessarily. And spina bifida, again, is mostly physical and may or may not carry any cognitive impairment. So that's the difference. You've been working and fighting for the developmentally disabled, obviously, for many, many years. What sort of problems are you, I was going to say, now facing, but I really want to convert that, are you still facing in getting them adequate care and treatment? The biggest problem is always public funding. Most families cannot afford to pay for some of the services they need without help, without tremendous insurance, and some type of insurance doesn't cover what their needs are. So for the average family, if they need health insurance, then they're looking for a really good employee plan. The individual who wants Medicaid for services is going to find problems, particularly in Florida. But this is a nationwide crisis. If, if you're not living in an institutional kind of a setting, you're living at home or in a group home, you're going to be looking for what's called a Medicaid waiver. And there's a list in Florida of maybe 15 to 20,000 people with developmental disabilities on a waiting list to get into the Medicaid waiver program. Not good. Would you explain what a waiver is? It's a government funding program, it's supposed to be health insurance for poor people of any age, but Medicaid waiver is more the program that gives you the health insurance plus services, and sometimes the funding goes towards the residential placement in part. That's what Medicaid waiver means. You're getting Medicaid and you're not living in an institution. If you were to move into a institutional setting on Medicaid, then if you're young and it's a developmental disabilities institutional setting, public or private, then it's called the Intermediate Care Program for the Mentally Retarded. In Florida, we changed the name to be more to be broader, and it's the Intermediate Care Facilities for the Developmentally Disabled. That's the institutional Medicaid program 
program. It's funded very differently than the Medicaid waiver. And the problem with that program is that the deinstitutionalization movement that started many, many years ago has basically caused many states to look at residential options for people with developmental disabilities very differently now. And the push has been for many years to live in the community, which means in a group home. And these institutions that are state or public intermediate care facilities in, in most states have been closed or significantly reduced. In Florida, we have only two out of four left, and those have moratoriums on placements. They're in a phase-down mode, and it's very difficult. So if you need a medical model, that's probably your best bet, unless you can find a private ICF intermediate care facility that takes Medicaid ICF. And there's, again, a finite number. No one seems to be moving to open more, and yet the numbers of people with severe disabilities are growing. And that's mostly due to medical advances and the population growth overall. So we're keeping people alive these days that, frankly, many years ago would have not made it. Yes. Absolutely. We have terrific advances, particularly in places like South Florida where we have a lot of near drownings. People that years ago would have just died naturally and can now be saved. And people that are very, very preemie, born at one pound now, can still be saved. And sometimes they weren't meant to be saved naturally and they're being saved. And now the end result is you have an individual with profound mental disabilities and physical disabilities. And the issue is what are we going to do about it? How can we afford to take care of these people? My son, for example, is 26, doesn't even know who we are, has never recognized us, and has always had multiple congenital problems. People like that need a medical model setting. Some of them have tubes and feedings and things like that that cannot be safely accommodated at an affordable level in a smaller setting. But those types of residential options have been pretty much taken off the table. So now instead of that, we are the push is for independent living, if you can live independently, and supported employment, group homes, and supported living. That's where the push is and that's where the Medicaid dollars are going because many more people are higher functioning than those that are not. In the mental retardation population only, about 90% of persons with mental retardation are considered mildly mentally retarded or mentally disabled. And so if you think about those kinds of numbers, only a tiny percentage are like my son at the profound level. And so they're sort of the overlooked population, but the vast majority are screaming for jobs independent living settings, and things that are more appropriate for them. The question comes up then to my mind is how much help is there available for someone to stay with their parents or with siblings in terms of the community, in terms of Medicaid coming in, offering home health care, respite care, those types of things. Are those options available at all? Yes, they're available, but at very, very limited. As I said, the Medicaid waiver in the state of Florida, which is I'm, what I'm describing, is pretty much similar in almost every other state. It's very underfunded, and therefore the respite programs, the, the therapies in home are very limited. If you're still school age, you fall under the federal law that allows you to have a free, appropriate special education. And so for children who are under 22, they can stay in the public school system until 22 or through the age of 22 and they can get all kinds of services during the day. Some of them are translated into home care, but if you're extremely low functioning, you're not gonna get the services you're gonna need that way. They'll try, but they really can't do it. And after 22, school ends, and then we have tremendous deficits in terms of delivery of care for people in this population. What happens to the families, the emotional and mental health needs of the families? It must be a terrible stress on them. Well, it's it's very, very, it's a, it's a tragedy to have a child, particularly when developmentally disabled or typically people born with these issues, 
as opposed to people who are in an accident. And either way, it's, it's tragic for the family. There's a lot of divorce in this population. I mean, they say among American couples, 50% divorce, and the rates are even higher than that for families with developmental disabilities because then you start fighting over who's the better parent. And things like that, I've seen that in my own home. When our son was very young, the stress is enormous, and you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what the outcome will be, and it's it's very challenging. So it does cause a marital stress. It causes stress when you have other children. Sometimes there's tremendous sibling rivalry because this one child who's so needy is being taken care of at a greater level because of the circumstances than the other child or children. Without a lot of breaks for the other kids or attention with the caregiver, then these people with the developmental disabilities tend to take over the home, they become the focal point. It's very interesting when my daughter, who's our, we have three children, our disabled son is the youngest, he's now 26, but when my children were young, our daughter, our middle child, drew a picture of our family. And for years, I thought that the biggest picture, the biggest person in the group of five was my husband because he just looked like him. And then one day I realized when we were talking that that was actually our our son, our youngest. And it was interesting that she put him in the center of the group and he was the largest person. And that's very telling because that's what happens. These people become really the focal point of the family. And if you can't give the family the support, they can disintegrate. And the higher functioning the person is, the more likely the family will cope. But for some people, you know, a child that can be what I would consider compared to my son, very mild or moderate, some families fall apart over that. So people are going to deal with the situation differently depending on their emotional makeup. I remember when President Kennedy was in office that his sister Rose had a neurodevelopmental disability and there was a lot of attention paid because obviously it was the Kennedy family and the president's family. So I think it was in the early 1960s that he and Sergeant Shriver, who just recently passed away, put together a uh, committee or a workforce on uh, special education needs and investing in scientific research and so on. And then the Americans with Disability Act was passed, what, in the early 90s? And then there were also another act about disabilities, education, improvement. Have those actually borne fruit or were those effective more on paper? They wonderful ideas, though. The Americans with Disabilities Act is a very good law. I think its impact has mostly been for disabled workers people that won't face job discrimination or people that are in a wheelchair that are trying to get into a restaurant or make their apartment more accessible. It hasn't, in my opinion, had a specific impact on the developmentally disabled population per se. It's more of a public transportation, public housing, public venues, restaurants, theaters, and things like that. It's terrific, but that hasn't helped as much as I think. A lot has helped in terms of public awareness of people with special needs and a a better sensitivity that's out there. But there's still stuff that goes on. For example, the word mental retardation. That is a medical condition that my son has, but the term has developed a negative connotation. So people now keep trying to find a better word for it. You can't say mentally retarded in many situations. People think that you're being offensive. It doesn't bother me because I understand that that is a medical term, but it's a very politically charged So now it's either mentally disabled, mentally challenged, or cognitively challenged, or cognitively impaired. And so we dance around all the the verbiage, and people have to stop using the term retard 
and retarded, and you hear that in popular movies, and 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 it's still being perpetuated. So in many Sadly ways, so. we have been sensitized or decent to these this population, but not entirely, and that needs to stop. The autism community now has really come out to the forefront, since so many more people are being diagnosed with a form of autism or the autism spectrum. And one of these days, that's going to be the next thing. They're going to start calling people who act a little strange. Are you you know autistic? And that'll become a dirty word. And people have to understand that these are just words that describe a medical condition and that they need to stop using it pejoratively. Let me ask you then a somewhat multi-layered question. Obviously, because you are an attorney and you are very active in the community trying to better the placement and the access for services for this group, if a young couple has a baby and the doctor comes to them and says, I'm very sorry, but your child looks as if they have a particular disability, where does this couple go for help? How do they begin to connect to the proper support mechanisms so that they deal with it as best as possible, both for their child and for their own mental health? Where where do they go in our society? That's a good question. I think that it's going to vary. depends on who gives them the news. If they're at a medical center in their community, I would hope that they have a social service division that can give them a list of resources, and that's a good beginning. If it's their private community pediatrician who's giving them the, the news, I would hope that the doctor also knows local services. We also have the Internet today, which families didn't have years ago, and the younger couples today, every one of them knows how to use a computer. And so you can do whatever you need to do in terms of resources online today, and that's a, ma- a major difference for families and that were lost years ago and maybe around in rural areas where they didn't have the wherewithal to go somewhere and get help. But now, again, I think if the provider should, if the provider is out there doling out information, they need to have a modicum of information at a minimum as to what social services are available, what to do next. In the public school system, from birth till age 22, there are special ed programs. So you don't have to be school age to get into the system. And that's the first place to turn, in my opinion, for some kind of services because they, they have to provide it and the public school system, it's free. So that's from birth up. Every state has different programs in special ed. If your city does not have it because you're in a rural community, federal law allows you to bring suit, if necessary, to take your kid into another public school system or even to a private school if the therapies are better there and they cannot provide an appropriate special education for your child. So I think the first stop after the doctors give you some leads is to get immediately in touch with the special education department in your school system and see what they what programs they have to offer. Again, it also depends on the, the nature of the disability, what you need. If it's more physical, if it's more physical therapy, then it is cognitive therapy. If it's speech therapy versus, you know, visual aids. So there's going to be a variety, a vast variety, but I think this, the doctors and the hospitals that give you the diagnosis should be prepared to tell you something, and then you can go to the Internet. You should go to special ed programs immediately, and those places will be able to direct you further because they know what's going on. I remember many years ago when I worked in a small town in South Carolina that when something would happen, a child would be born with a very severe disability, we would actually even discuss with the parents the option of them having to move, to move to a larger city where there was a medical school, mainly because of the availability of resources. And and that's a hard thing. Sometimes people can't leave their jobs, but this can truly become a very major variable in a family's life, maybe the most largest variable in a family's life. 
I saw that in Texas when we were, when I was first married, we were in the Air Force in Del Rio, Texas, and I did homebound teaching. I was completely unprepared for it, but that was the only job that they had open, and I took it. And so I used to visit people, kids that were out of school because they had had babies or because they'd been in an accident or whatever. And there was one young child, a Mexican-American, who had cerebral palsy, and she had very bad spasticity. I begged the parents to travel to San Antonio, which is a major city where they had a lot more services. They never moved. The father was a painter. So theoretically, I can't see why he couldn't try and get a job in San Antonio. But they never went. And we've been back to visit this family in Del Rio, Texas over the last 10 years. And the child is now a young woman. And she's a pretzel. She's absolutely frozen in, in catatonic positions from the tremendous contractures you get from severe cerebral palsy. And I kept thinking, what a waste, what a shame, because this family never made the move that this would have been critically helpful to their daughter. But there's all kinds of families, and professionals can make all the advice they want, and some people will take your advice, and some people will disregard it. You have a very good organization. I know there are other organizations similar to this around the United States, but tell us a little bit about how the voices, Florida Voices on Developmental Disabilities, came to be. Back in 1995, I got together with another group of parents. We met in my home, Very started very small, and decided I had decided that we needed a statewide organization. There's a lot of local groups, and that's very good because a lot of people need a lot of local, local support. And they have local autism groups and local Down syndrome groups and local Prader Will-like groups, etc. But I thought that what we needed was something on a statewide level where we could bring all the families together. We could share knowledge. Families moving to the state would find out what's available throughout the state. And we do not take any government funding whatsoever. Not a penny comes from any city, state, or federal entity. Therefore, we can be very honest and don't have to worry about losing any kind of funding stream. So we tell families what's going on in the legislature. They have to be very empowered. And there's a saying, ignorance is bliss, and I've never heard of anything more stupid than that because to me ignorance is ignorance, not bliss. It's just total ignorance. And the dumber you are, the more you can be taken advantage of. So it's critically important to empower families. That's why we have an annual conference. We have you know newsletter. We have a lot of stuff online. And families need to know what's going on. I think the biggest thing that we're going to be faced with as the years go by is a continuing restriction of federal and state funding. State funding typically relies on federal funding, and it's going to get smaller and smaller. The population is growing, and the money is getting less, and we're in a tremendous situation now. So we need to get more creative in terms of finding other resources for families of money and programs that aren't going to rely entirely on public funding like Medicaid, where you have 15,000 people waiting to get into the system, and only people in crisis get into it, and then they push everyone else on that waiting list further back on the waiting list, and the more people get on the back of that list, you know, the Medicaid waiver, if you move from one state to another, does not transfer. You have to reapply. So if a family is fortunate enough, for example, to find us on the internet, they look up Florida's Voice, or they just look up Florida and Developmental Disabilities, and Florida's Voice on Developmental Disabilities pops up, and they get me, and I get their email, I forward it to our members, and then we share information, but that's critical, and I tell families, you're moving to Florida, you better rethink it if your child is already on the Medicaid waiver in your home state because 
you're going to have a tremendous problem getting in the system. You won't get in. And part of that is because so many of these people do need care. The care is very expensive, and very, very few people in the world can afford to pay it out of their own pockets. So the government has to step in. And we're, we're stuck in a situation where we have to offer some civility and dignity to these people and to their families, actually. I noticed also as I was reading the literature on developmental disabilities, especially that section dealing with the advocacy for this group, that the term family empowerment kept coming up over and over, and that's just what you were talking about. Arlene Lakin is the president of the Florida's Voice on Developmental Disabilities. She also is an attorney, and most importantly in terms of what she brings to this entire topic is that she is the mother of a child with a severe developmental disability, and so she's lived it firsthand. Mrs. Lakin, thank you very much for being with us, and thank you for your work and for sharing the reality of your own family. Thank you, Dr. Stratz. This is a pleasure to work with you. Thank you.